1: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry.
0: On today's program, we'll hear from the family of Mary Jo Kopechny, whose death in a car accident with Senator Ted Kennedy at the wheel is the subject of an upcoming film, Chappaquiddick. We'll also talk to the star of the television show Fix My Life about her work to put broken families back together again.
3: I'm not going to be the one defined
2: by my flaws.
0: If your family doesn't blame you, watch it, America.
2: I want to be a great man. just don't know who I am.
0: An accident near Chappaquiddick Island, Massachusetts in July of 1969 is the centerpiece of a movie set for release this week. And it's surprising that many are unfamiliar with the details surrounding this tragedy. For a Luzerne County family, they've never forgotten the pain of the mishap that killed 28-year-old Mary Jo Kopechny, who lived in Plymouth as a little girl until her parents, Joe and Gwen, moved to East Orange, New Jersey. Mary Jo, a bright and engaging young woman was concerned with the civil rights movement of the 1960s and admired a young Massachusetts senator named Robert Kennedy. Mary Jo went on to work for Robert Kennedy, until his tragic death at the hands of an assassin in 1968. She was one of the Boiler Room Girls, the precursors to modern-day political consultants, who worked strategically across the country in order to get campaigns off the ground. The Boiler Room Girls had gathered at a party on Chappaquiddick Island on July 18, 1969, for a reunion. Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy was in attendance. Kopechny left the party with Kennedy, and he was at the wheel of the vehicle that careened off a bridge and into the water beneath. Kennedy escaped the crash and ended up back at a local hotel, That crash was not reported until the following morning. The body of Mary Jo Kopechny was retrieved by rescue personnel and buried in her hometown of Plymouth. Kennedy attended the funeral and later pleaded guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. An inquest into the mishap, held in 1970, is the basis of a new movie, Chappaquiddick, set for release by Entertainment Studios. We recently met with Georgetta Petosky, Mary Jo's first cousin, who still lives in Plymouth, and her son, William Nelson, who wasn't born when the tragedy transpired. Both are authors of the book, Our Mary Joe*, which recalls Kopechny through letters and photos. Georgetta shared her recollections of her cousin and her impressions of the movie, which was recently shown in wilkes at a private screening for the family. Mary Jo's mother and my mother were sisters, and we grew up together.
4: Until she was about five, give or take, they lived in Wyoming Valley. And then Joe. Uh, wanted uh, more opportunity. He didn't want to go in the mines, so they decided they would go to New Jersey. And he got a job working for Hartford Insurance Company, and they moved to the, what they called the Projects in uh, uh, East Orange. A lot of the people from uh, the Valley lived there, so they had friends and acquaintances, and the Pennsylvania people were always given good jobs, and very quickly, because they had a great work ethic. And everyone knew that. But after that time, then she would spend the summers with us. She'd spend part of the summer with us, and I'd spend part of the summer with them.
0: Tell me a little bit about her from your recollection of of your childhood together.
4: She was a lot of fun. She was a lot of fun. Uh, Devilish, yes. I remember my mother telling the story when we were all kids. We were on the first floor of this place where we lived, and my mother was sitting at the sewing machine, and she saw us come in the door. But she didn't see us go out, so we would run around behind her to the bedroom and we would get out on the window sills, and straddle the windows until we got to the porch and then come back in. We could have killed ourselves. And I remember we had a pillow fight and my mother used to make pillows from chicken feathers. So when they burst, there was feathers all over the room. And we were so surprised when my mother got all upset. <laughs> Because we were picking feathers off the floor and out of the, uh, behind the dressers for five years. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. just chicken feathers everywhere. But most of the time we read books together. And we took long walks and we talked. We talked. She was a great talker, a great thinker. So, and the last time I saw her, which is in the book, we were on the Santa Rosa Island. We had gone to the shore and we were reading a book by Anne Morrow Lindbergh. It was about shells. And in the book, each chapter was dedicated to a different kind of shell, which exemplified the type of person she was thinking about when she wrote the shell book. So that was the last book we read together. But when she came in, uh, we would take our blankets and our pillows and lay out in the yard under the trees and just read all day, act out some things, laughed a lot. She was great fun. Just normal normal girls together, right? That's right. Just normal girls. And we thought we would grow old together and raise our kids together and didn't happen.
0: How closely were you following her career in Washington in the political world?
4: I knew where she was and what she was doing. I never met any of the other boiler room girls. I knew she was very excited and very happy about where she was. But at that time, I was in Pensacola, Florida, having babies. So my life was tied up. My husband was in the Navy. We were stationed there at Softly Field, and I was very busy But I had two little girls at the time. And so the last summer I saw her, she spent her vacation with us. And we had a Volkswagen, which she didn't like at all because it was a stick shift. But then when she went back to Washington, D.C., she bought one. (laughs) I never saw her again after that. What year was that? 67.
0: Talk about the boiler room girls for people who don't know... The boiler room
4: girls were a group of young women who were actually political consultants. And Mary Jo's job, for the most part, there was they were each given a segment of the country as far as states go. I think Mary Jo had New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and maybe Maryland or maybe New York. I'm not sure. But there was no computers, so they operated off index cards. In fact, I have her index cards for when she was... In the office, and they would keep in touch with all of the um, Democratic leaders in their sections, and uh, you know, encourage them to get more people involved and to support Barbara Kennedy. And they had very responsible jobs. They had to do a lot of their own writing and a lot of their own conversations with these with these people, and then do whatever else they needed. Like Mary Jo was the one who wrote, who typed Bobby's presidential speech when he wrote. In fact, we have a carbon copy of that.
0: So her relationship was more with Robert Kennedy than Ted Kennedy. Is right. that fair to say? She came.
4: She she had been in Alabama teaching in a Catholic school, a black Catholic Catholic school. Nobody wanted her down there because it was the civil rights and it was the '60s and it was very dangerous. But she wouldn't come north until. One of her friends had gotten a job in Washington, and she, now this we did talk about, she thought about, she wanted to do something that would make a difference, and she felt she was doing that in teaching school. On the other hand, if she went to Washington, she had a chance to work with people who were making the laws, and that, she felt, was a a broader expanse of assistance that she could give. So that's why she came out of the South. And she worked first for Senator Smathers from Florida. Politically, they weren't really on the same page, but she was in in there. And she kept putting her application in Bobby Kennedy's office. Bobby would sometimes come and get her if he needed to fill in with someone. And when she uh, finally was going to move over to his office, Senator Smathers says, you might as well take her because it's not my picture she's got on her desk. (laughs) It's yours. Take her. (laughs) so she started to work for Bobby then yeah and she was devastated when he was killed they all were in fact that last um, meeting that they had at Chappaquiddick they had no job Bobby was gone and she and a couple of the other girls were given the task of shutting down his office and then after that everybody kind of went their own way they were looking for other positions and so this meeting that they had on Chappaquiddick in 69 was just kind of a reunion before they really all went their separate ways.
0: What do you know about that, that night uh, in terms of what was discussed at the reunion and the uh, circumstances that she got in the car with Ted Kennedy? What do you know about all that? Nothing. I know nothing. Her parents know nothing.
4: They knew Nothing. None of us, except what we appeared in the newspapers or was written in the books, because she wasn't around after that to to ask questions of. And when Gwen would try and get in touch with the Boiler Room girls, they would um, say, "Back, get in touch with my lawyer." And she, uh, when she tried to get in touch with Ted, the one instance where he invited them to Hyannisport. Because prior to that, he was more or less, uh, would you just go along with me, and afterwards we'll tell you everything that happened. So they finally got an invitation to go to Hyannisport, and they thought, well, this, this is it. We're, we're going to find out what, what happened. Because by that time, there were suspicions of confusion, of time that didn't work, and no one was saying really much of anything, and they had all kinds of theories. So when they got to Hyannisport... They walked into a cocktail party, and he came over and said hello, and then he left, and it came out in the news. Copechines had gone to a cocktail party at Hyannisport. Isn't everything wonderful? And so they never went back. So they never knew. They never had the last days or hours of their daughter's life. No one ever came to them and said This is what happened, or I saw Mary Jo and she was happy. She was looking forward to her new job. We don't know why she went in the car. We know why she went in the car. We don't know anything. They never had it, and they never got it. People had different ideas about what might have happened, but when I found out that she had died, it was a Sunday morning, and I was in the living room, and I was folding diapers because I'd had another baby. Now I had three. And so (laughs) I heard my husband answer the phone in the kitchen, and he said, um, he said, Mary Jo, that's too bad. And I knew she was dead. And he came into the living room and he said, Mary Jo was in a swimming accident. She drowned in, in, uh, up in Massachusetts. And I'm sitting there thinking Mary Jo was an excellent swimmer. Then I thought, well, maybe she dove in and hit her head or that's the only thing we, could, we knew. And no one else knew anything different at that time. So I called my mother, and the line was busy. And I called my sisters, and the lines were busy. And I called Gwen, and the lines were busy. So I said to Bill, let's just pack up and go down. So we came home.
0: Then what happened when you came home?
4: Well, everyone was still in a state of shock. Gwen and Joe were running all over, and they were just destroyed. They were just destroyed. We went to the funeral home, and Joe was kind of glazed. And um, he was trying to make other people not feel bad. You know, You know, he's, we'll, just, we'll get through this. We'll do our best. And, but he, he wasn't even making a lot of sense. He was just, Mary Jo looked beautiful. Anyway, um, I went downstairs to see Gwen, and she was sedated. And there were all these other people around her. And she said, I'm so glad you're here. And then these people I didn't know just kind of scooped her up and Gave her a cup of tea and tell her everything was going to be okay, everything was going to be all right. And I thought, who are these people? I went back upstairs and visited with my family. And then the next day, when they had the funeral mass, I stayed home because I had the baby to take care of and the two other little kids. But when the funeral came up to the cemetery, we lived nearby. My mother and I walked up to the cemetery to the graveside. And we had to walk because they weren't allowing any cars in except the funeral procession. And then almost, they say see, that was in July. In November, we got transferred to Hawaii. And we went there because Mary Jo had been to Hawaii and was telling me how wonderful it was. And Bill had an option to either go to Hawaii as a family or he would go to Italy alone and I could move the house and all three kids and follow. And then... That's not happening so but we went to Hawaii because she had been there and loved it so she was kind of a role model a mentor for me she was two years older and and much more serious
0: she took life more serious what do you recall about Ted Kennedy coming to that funeral from your family well, it was shocking I mean I'm not shocked that he came he
4: should have done that but he had that neck brace on and it just didn't play out well you know it and he was, um, oh, how do I say this? How, how do I say something bad and make it sound decent? Politicking, because everybody in town, there were thousands of people in front of the church at the funeral. There were hundreds of people lined up by the funeral home. Guilties, on, you know where that is in Cleveland? They, they everybody who was going into the funeral home was being screened. So who are you and what do you want and do you have any business being there? And they let us ride in, so they must have known who we were. But when we came down from the funeral, the actual uh, funeral at the graveside, the press was in our house, and they were filing their stories on the phone. Well, you have to remember, we're two miles from town. There's no phone booths. There's no cell phones, and they're going to get in wherever they can. the girl who was watching all the babies was crying because she didn't, she knew when they got in there that was a bad thing that she had done letting them in. My brother-in-law put them out. It was very hard. And then Gwen and Joe and a couple of the other family members went to um, the funeral luncheon and he was there at the funeral luncheon. And that was um, the end of it. I never had any contact with the Kennedys. I don't know. And Gwen couldn't get really good contact with them. And then we left in a month or two afterwards and to Hawaii for four years. So it was kind of like a blank spot there.
0: So you weren't here when they had the, the inquest or anything? It I was, was not. It? Okay. Well, but what are your recollections of that from your family? Um, mostly, and
4: again, don't forget, there's no cell phones. You're going to pay for that call from Hawaii. So we didn't have many phone calls. But We wrote letters back and forth, but they were kind of sketchy, because my mother and father, and my family is in Pennsylvania, and Gwen and Joe are still in New Jersey, and they're fielding off a lot of that. Um, Gwen said that after Ted called them the morning she died, or the next day, within a few hours there were Kennedy people at their house in New Jersey. And she said, of course, Gwen was, they were destroyed. And... Um, they were screening the people that were trying to get in touch with Gwen and Joe. And she said, at first, we thought that they were helping us. And then she realized there were people who had come that she would have wanted to see, and they were being turned away, too. In At least initially, until we got past the funeral, they were kind of surrounded. So it wasn't until after that, and then I'll, I'm already gone. I'm in Hawaii.
0: What was your reaction, though, when you heard that the... Uh the exhumation was denied and everything well did, what did, did I you I thought
4: at the time that they should have had the exhumation because I knew Mary Jo they weren't going to find anything bad about her and her parents knew that but they were angry because they thought that people wanted the exhumation just to see whether she was pregnant or not and they were not going to allow that they turned that down but years later Gwen said to I me mean, this is just a few years before they died she said you know that was the biggest mistake of my life I should have had that. But that time was 40 years past the date, so.
0: Now, of course, time has passed, and there have been all kinds of portrayals of of what had happened at Chappaquiddick. Now there's a movie about to be released. When did you hear about this movie? And initially, what what was your gut reaction to it? Well,
4: I was uh, nervous. Uh, I heard about it from Bill, and I said, what are they going to say that's new? And that was... Did, we already had the book out by that time. Yes, it was done. What are they going to do? Rehash the same old things? How are they going to handle it? Is he going to get smashed, which we didn't want either, or is she going to be portrayed negatively, or what? Because to this very day, no one, most people, do not know what happened that night. The only ones who know, basically, are Ted and Mary Jo, and they're gone.
0: Now you had the opportunity to see this movie. We did. And I'd like to just get, to, you know, what what that was like for you. I, I'm sure that it, because you just described it, you had some trepidation on yes. all accounts of yes. how this would come out and yes. even why they would choose this story after right. all these years. After all these years. And what they did, which
4: is the only thing they could do and do well, was they used the inquest uh, findings and Kennedy's story about that night. They couldn't do anything else because nobody knows anything else. So they wouldn't want to portray, I was hoping, some off-the-wall theory about what might have happened. But so they stuck very close to what, it started with the accident. There were some flashbacks and it ended when he gave his talk over the air. So that was only like a week, but it was a busy week. And they worked very hard. The the, the actors were exceptionally good because they walked a fine line, you know, between what you were to perceive and what might have happened. Very carefully. And I thought that they were fair and honest with Ted's performance. He wasn't made out to be a superhero, nor was he made out to be a complete fool.
0: Obviously, Ted Kennedy had to answer to his father and that is portrayed in the movie. What did you think about that? <laughs>
4: the, the way they portrayed the father was the first thing he yelled out was alibi. Alibi. And
0: do you think that's accurate? I don't know.
4: Yeah. I don't know because I know that they interviewed a lot of people and they so they may have picked up some nuances that other people didn't have. I don't know. But he uh I think Ted was Trying to do the right thing after having done the completely wrong thing, but also save himself. And I think, and I think most people do, that nine or ten hours when he wasn't reporting the accident, he was putting a machine into process so he could survive this politically.
0: You saw Mary Jo portrayed on screen. Obviously, you knew her. What did you think about it? Did, did it remind you of who she was?
4: Yes, although I think she was a little vanilla, I think they were so careful that her full personality did not come through. But um, so they played it safe with her. Kate Mira did a beautiful job. beautiful job. They worked with what they had. So yeah, I think she was a little too bland, but still done very well, done very well. You didn't They weren't giving you any implications of any improprieties. And when they would show Ted and Mary Jo together, they were talking about his political campaign where he wanted her to come and work for him because she had, had, she had worked so well for his brother. And she was saying she wasn't sure she wanted to
0: do that any, again.
4: Have you been uh, sought
0: out a lot since word broke that this movie was going to be made? Well, I
4: have to say, Bill's had the bulk of that. He's been sought out a lot, but we're very careful um, because Gwen and Joe stayed away from the press most of their lives, because when they would um, be courted to give an interview, they would be told it would be about Mary Joe, and it turned out to be something altogether different. And so, after a few of those instances, they shut the door on
0: everybody. I know you've you've written a book that's been out for several years about Mary Joe. How would you how would you like her? to be remembered from, from your perspective from a family member and somebody that grew up with her. She was a wonderful person. I miss her. Georgetta Potosky of Plymouth recalled her relationship with her older cousin, Mary Jo Kopechny, during an interview in advance of the movie Chappaquiddick. In our next segment, William Nelson talks about learning more about the tragedy that took Mary Jo's life and his thoughts on the upcoming movie. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
0: When William Nelson was a youngster living in Plymouth with his parents, he heard the name Mary Joe when he was asked about her whereabouts by a member of the media. Nelson has gone on to learn much more about his relative, Mary Joe Kopechny, by talking to his mother, Georgetta Petosky, and co-authoring the book, Our Mary Joe with her. Nelson says the team behind the soon-to-be-released film Chappaquiddick was influenced by the book. He spoke to us recently about that book, his impressions of the film, and that memory of first hearing Mary Jo's name.
2: The earliest memory I have, I think, was when we were growing up. We lived on Larksville Mountain, and we lived right next to St. Vincent Cemetery. Um, so even in the book, there's a little story about my first encounter with who Mary Joe was, and it was it was a reporter with a big camera hanging around his neck that had come up to me. I was playing in the backyard, and he wanted to know where Mary Joe was, and I didn't I didn't have any idea what he was talking about, like who who was this woman. And then my father intervened very quickly and hustled the man away. That was the first inkling of me thinking to myself, well, who's Mary Jo and who are they looking for and what's going on here? And i had asked my father who Mary Jo was, and he said, when someone comes looking for Mary Joe, you come and get me immediately. So I was about four years old, and that's my first uh, discovery of who Mary Jo was. But growing up... I was always curious about Mary Joe because there was not a lot of information out there. There were two pieces of information and she went to Caldwell College and she was a boiler room girl who died in Chappaquiddick and that was it. So the only information I could get started to come from my mom. So we would talk about who she was as a person and then we started going through all of the letters that my mom had had and, and it kind of flushed out her character more um, from people from high school from that she worked with personally, friends of hers, so I got more of a rounded picture. Of who she was as I grew up uh, from there, and it was it was very helpful. But the the mystery I kept saying for 20 years is how does this happen? I couldn't understand how how something like this could happen and and it could just be washed away uh, so quickly. Um, but then, as my mother would say, these were different times. So in the 60s, when you had the Kennedys, were very revered. So. You can understand right or wrong on how it happened, but you can kind of understand how it happened. And that's what we started down the journey of trying to figure out how it happened.
0: How did you decide that this was the right thing to do? Because I know there was this veil of privacy with the family obviously and that they were pretty enclosed because they had been mm-hmm. burned by the press and everything so how did you how did you decide that this was the thing you wanted to do I,
2: I could tell you I could tell you yeah. the exact day that everything shifted was for for years I was angry about the whole incident but there was no way we were going to write a book bashing anybody or or doing conspiracy theories or, or any of that stuff so I remember it I'd always wanted um, my mother to do a book about preserving what we had as far as the letters and the memories and the pictures because I wanted to do that. We wanted to do it for the family so that they would be able to see who their aunt was or who their relative was. So we wanted to capture it. And I remember the conversation I had with my mom one day on the phone, and I said, Well, you know, you're the president of the Historical Society. It's your job to preserve these things. And she chuckled. And uh, and she said, well, I don't want to do a book about Chappaquiddick. And I said, well, we don't have to put Chappaquiddick in the book then. And there was this long pause. And she said, can we do that? And I said, you know what? Chappaquiddick was never about Mary Jo anyway. So she doesn't owe Chappaquiddick anything. So why don't we write a book about Mary Jo and we'll just leave Chappaquiddick out of it? Like, you know, who are we to do such a thing? But that's the way we really decided to take a different road and to take a different path with it and to stop going down that same negative path of her death and then started to celebrate more of her life. So that day we decided to do that and to just tell the world who Mary Jo was and and allow her description to come through and allow people to be able to make their own judgment about what may or may not have happened that night. And I said to my mom one time, we may not know what happened at Chappaquiddick, but we can at least tell the world what probably didn't happen at Chappaquiddick. So by defining Mary Jo's character and her religious upbringing and her values and her morals, chances are there was no salacious Behavior, so we can only play the odds in, in that uh, in in that night. But when you find out what didn't happen, it kind of leads you down the path of what may have actually happened. Then at that point,
0: so you you do this, and then you get wind or word that this movie is being made, mm-hmm. and you actually make a connection with the people making the movie because you want to show a side of Mary Joe mm-hmm. that is portrayed in the book. So talk about Mm. your desire to see um, that put into the movie.
2: Well, It was about two years ago, and and I came upon an article of, there's Mark Ciardi and Apex Entertainment, and they were looking for a director to do uh, Chappaquiddick, and that was my first understanding that they were going to make a a movie. And so I talked to my mom, and we wanted them to be able to portray Mary Jo accurately. That's all we wanted. Just do it Correctly and, and make sure that you tell the world who she actually was. So I contacted Mark Ciardi, and we had a great conversation um, about about her character. And I, had, frankly, I had said to him, if you show who Mary Joe was and you show her ambitions and her wit and her humor, and then you lose her in the movie and she she dies in the movie, it compounds the tragedy and it will make your movie actually better because your character has been flushed out. Whereas. They didn't have a lot of other avenues to go to research who Mary Jo was. So we sent four books. We sent one to the producer, one to the director, and two to the writers so that they can all understand who she was when they were making this character and and flush it out a little bit better so they can be as accurate as possible with her.
0: And how do you feel that they did based upon what you you saw when the screening was held in Wilkesbury?
2: I think they did a very good job. They all did with all of their characters. Kate Mara played Mary Joe. I can't say reserved because Mary Joe was very serious. She had a lightning wit about her, and she was very smart and she was very funny when she told jokes. But she never said anything improper, and she was she seemed like she was driven and she was dedicated in what she was doing. So Kate Mara did a good job showing that that serious side. Uh, there's a scene where. They're at the party in Chappaquiddick, and Ted is sitting on a couch, and he's looking off and away, and you can tell that he's depressed, and you can tell that there's something wrong with him. The way they did it in the movie, Mary Joe's character approaches Ted not in a way of any romantic involvement, but more of a—like, he is Bobby's brother. So more of a compassionate— what is wrong and and how are you doing and do you want to talk kind of which i thought was more accurate you know based on who she was i would think that mary jo would do something like that so there's little um there's little instances in the movie where they really capture her wit there's one other scene where she was kind of i think she was teasing ted about coming in ninth in the in the race and that's something that she would do you know she had that kind of humor about her so um so i we were pleased with how how they portrayed her
0: how do you think the the rest of the country will perceive this. I know this movie has been kind of out on uh, and shown in certain areas, right? It was the, the guys were at South by Southwest. It was, I believe, it was screened there, right? Yes. Yes. Um, how how do you, how are you perceiving its portrayal? Are you reading articles? About, I I would because I'm so curious about everything.
2: Yes, I, I've been reading up on it to see how people are reacting to it, and there's it's almost split down the middle as far as some people are. They politicize it, and they want to go back to Democrats and Republicans. And then there are other people who are just happy that they're finally putting this story out there so that future generations can see exactly what the official event was of what happened that night because a lot of people know the word Chappaquiddick, but they don't have any idea what happened. They don't, they don't understand not only what happened that night, but they don't understand what occurred after that night leading up to that speech and this movie kind of delves more into the behind the scenes of of the political machine that happens after that um, but the reviews have been great on the acting Jason Clark I can tell you, he it's not an actor playing Ted Kennedy. You actually believe, and I've seen a lot of speeches, and I've read a lot of books about Ted Kennedy. I've never met the man, but this is as close of a rendition that you're going to get of somebody playing uh, Ted Kennedy. The characters surrounding him are very powerful. The actors all did a very good job. But the overall feel that I get from the movie itself was that all of these people took great care and they were very vested in this project. And it wasn't so much about... I mean, I understand movies have to make money. And I'm sure they wouldn't be disappointed if it made a bunch of money. But, And I'm sure it will. But I don't think that that was their main focus when they went into this project. So it's very very similar to when we wrote our book independently. They did this movie independently and it gave them the best shot to do the best work that they possibly could without having any pressure from big studios to do this or cut this scene or or any of that stuff. So I think it will be well received. Even if I wasn't directly connected to the movie and I step back and I watch the movie it's a compelling story from the beginning all the way to the end so they did a good job with telling the story and and it's emotional there's a lot of parts in there that it's a roller coaster you know um, in the whole movie so I I think it will be well received and, and Jason Clark should be he should be nominated for an Academy Award because he really he sunk really sunk into that into that role. There was an interview where they were talking about, um, have you ever taken a character home with you? And Jason Clark had said that because of that scene on the phone, trying to call the parents, that it was very difficult to capture the emotion. Very, very and and they and did. They- there was one of the writers, uh, Taylor Allen, who I had spoken with about about uh, the writing, and I had asked him why. Why Teppaquiddick? This is the first movie that you've ever written. Why would you pick this subject? And he said he stumbled across it about a year and a half before he started writing. And he said, and it just ate away at him. And he said, it bothered me in my stomach, this, this whole incident just bothered me. And it bothered me that there was no closure to this incident. And I think that that feeling is what a lot of people get when they start to look at Chappaquiddick, is that one, there was no justice for Mary Jo, but there was no closure of it. It was swept under the rug, and it was kind of just dismissed. And even 40 years later, it really bothers people when they start, the people who know about Chappaquiddick. So so he was, um, I sent him a nice letter uh, after the after the movie was out, uh, thanking him for his hard work, and he had replied to me that this is what he was waiting for—the the response from the family and being pleased on what they did was really, really important to them. And he thanked me for you know reaching out to him about about that, and which I was happy to do because again they they did do a good job. I was I was surprised.
0: You've been uh, the point man on media contacts. Who have you heard from?
2: We did an exclusive with People Magazine. Uh, we're doing a. Uh, an interview for a Fox documentary. Um, we're going to do that uh, two Wednesdays from now um, because they have it's a documentary easy. coming out about Chappaquiddick and they want to have the family side of it. So that's a video documentary. Then there's a, a show we're doing, Martha McCallum, um, the story uh, she had invited us on. I don't know exactly when we're going to do that. Um, of course, yourself, Bob Kalinowski. There's some local papers. Um, so we'll pretty much. I, I think it's important that other generations see what happened, not only because it's it's important, but so that something like that's never repeated again. And I don't think it'll ever be repeated again. I think they only got away with it because of the time and the people involved. But you want to make sure that people know their history as to not repeat it. You know, to make sure that it doesn't you know doesn't ever occur to anybody else.
0: What are your your feelings about Ted Kennedy?
2: My feelings about they they changed a little bit after watching the movie. I I still don't like him, but it's It's for a different reason. Um, They gave him more depth in the movie, and I'm not letting him off the hook in any way, shape, or form, because in the movie he has the opportunity to do the right thing several times, and he doesn't. And that's a character flaw more than anything else. Can you see he's devastated his brother was assassinated? Yes. Can you see his devastation from his other brother and the pressure from his father? Yes. You can see all of those things. But all of those things still don't give him... Um, The right to do the things that he did afterwards, Um, especially since there are reports that she could have been saved had he been quicker to, you know, the when I was talking to Mark Ciardi, he had said that uh, they had filmed a lot of it in a water tank in Mexico. They rebuilt the bridge and they had done a lot of that there. It was in the same one that they did the Titanic in. But he said it was important that we went back to Chappaquiddick because they wanted to get the bridge, and they also wanted to get the space between the bridge and the first cottage. And in the movie, there's a scene where the little boy discovers the car, and the camera follows him all the way up the road to this cottage that he could have went to to report it. And it's shocking how it's such short distance to the bridge. So they're showing you that, you know, he could have gone right to this cottage and It was interesting. uh, It was interesting to see um, the different scenes on Chappaquiddick. They wanted to keep it as real as possible.
0: William Nelson and his mother, Georgetta Petosky, recently shared their memories of Mary Jo Kopechny with us in advance of the release of the movie Chappaquiddick. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
0: They say that past practice sometimes influences future behavior. The star of the own network show Fix My Life, Eon La Van Zant, often relies on some of her own struggles when trying to sew the fabric of broken families back together. Her combination of personal experience, courtroom training, and a no nonsense style also makes her a popular speaker. And she'll be at the Sands Bethlehem on Saturday, April 14th for her show entitled Get Over It, An Evening with Iyanla Van Zant." Well,
3: I paid attention to my own life. And I think what I discovered is there are so many common issues that just show up in a variety of, of ways. And people seem to get stuck in believing that their problem is is unique and it's different and it really isn't you know we're all facing the similar challenges whether it's from our family or in relationships or how we feel about ourselves So I really started paying attention to my
0: own life. And I think that that kind of you are not alone philosophy has been used successfully in a lot of the, you know, the fraternities we see, like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, other things, where people come together and they learn themselves that other people are going through a real struggle just like them. That's a really empowering moment, isn't it?
3: It really is, you know, and, and the challenge is that so many of us won't speak, um, you know, what it is that we're going through. We've either been betrayed before or abandoned before or disappointed before, and rather than risk that again, we hold our, our upsets or our pains or our wounds in silence. So my intention in in presenting the stories that we do on Fix My Life is to remind people, look, you're not alone. This this is it. And if you see something here that can support you in feeling better, doing better, living better, take it and, and run with it. You know, get over it, if you will, <laughs> by, by watching someone else as a demonstration of what you might be living through or feeling.
0: And I think a lot of us kind of bury things because we want to be that people-pleasing vessel. We we put up that front, and I think a lot of people use Facebook as their ultimate front hey look at me all as well but when they go home at night it's it's just not so and it's pretty destructive for the individual who tries to be the people pleaser all the time but really is suffering tremendously from the th- those around them that they're trying to help but sometimes they just make it worse
3: well you know it, it's really it, people pleasing is one level but then uh, What I discovered in my own life is, you know, people have so many gifts and talents and dreams, but we're not really uh, given the tools and the skills we need. To, to get out there and share those things or we're, we're afraid. If you look around the world today, one of the biggest places most people suffer is in their personal relationships. I mean, divorce is at an all-time high. Our families are breaking down and so very often it's because we simply don't have the tools and the skills to master our minds and create what it is we desire in our life and that's what I want to share with people. You know, not in a heavy, um, therapeutic way, but in a really um, practical, personal, intimate way. Here, you can get over that, whatever that is. Get over it. Use these skills. Do your work and fix your life.
0: Often, uh, in in the past, the the family structure has has been seen in various ways and in in various points in our history you know, the, the nuclear family. And then I, I think there became a time when that uh, kind of family was uh, derided and um, people thought that maybe they can, you know, go it alone and, and raise their children single-handedly, which with, with just two hands is, is so, so difficult. And now uh, we're, we're seeing these situations where some kids are just absolutely adrift because they don't have positive role-modeling in their lives when they're young, and I saw a clip of you with uh, a, a young man who had a, a, a young boy on his lap, and he was having a very terse conversation um, with a woman, and you said to him, "Don't you see? Don't you see what you, you're doing? Don't you see what kind of stage you're setting?" So, how important is it for us to value and recognize uh, a, stru- a family structure of some sort? I
3: think it's very. Very, very important because the family is our world you know from birth to like five when you go to kindergarten that's your world so what you see what you experience what you hear in that world is going to translate to how you show up in the larger world and again you know not to find blame or fault or have judgment it's just that so many of us just don't have the skills our parents didn't have it and we don't have it so i think Fix My Life and, and, the, and the things that I write about simply take a private conversation because, you know, we talk about these things and makes it much larger. It's just a way that we can have a larger conversation and share skills, tools, and information that will make us all better.
0: And I know you deal a lot of times with folks who have issues regarding substance abuse, and in our community we have some very major deep Rooted issues with people who are escaping through substances of some sort and they end up dead a lot here. We have a huge opioid problem. I know we're not unique across the country and I'm sure you see this in other places. But uh, do you think that there will come a day when people will get back to um, some kind of spirituality, meditation, redirection so that they always don't have to celebrate uh, wine o'clock or, or whatever? I mean, and, and some people, I think, get caught in a trap like this and they absolutely cannot get out.
3: Well, that's that's prayerfully that's what'll happen. You know, it's not just opioids; it's food, it's shopping, it's sex. <laughs> you know, so and what happens is people aren't setting out to become addicted or to become, um, you know, to have these things become a problem. What they're doing is trying to eliminate the pain. One of the things I always say to people who who threaten to take their life is, you don't really want to die; you just want to stop hurting. And no place in our society are we given the skills, the tools, the information to deal with our individual pain, whether it's the pain of abandonment or rejection or family breakdown or or how we see ourselves and feel about ourselves. So we reach for whatever is available and physical just to end the pain. And unfortunately, when it comes to opioids or alcohol or or uh, self-street drugs, We're self-medicating, and then we become addicted. That's not what we set out to do. What we set out to do is stop hurting. So I want to share with people tools and skills and information so that, A, they get control of their mind again, B, so that they take control of themselves and their lives, and C, so that they can get over the things that are hurting them.
0: One more question. When you see these uh, school shootings across the country, uh, what does your gut say about them? And we, we all search for solutions of all sorts, whether they be major legislative overhauls or other things. What, what are you thinking about this? And what do you think is an idea or two of how you believe that we should respond to them?
3: Well, it's a reflection of the violence that we hold in our consciousness. We are violent. We think violently. We see violent things. We see the worst first. And, And so it begins, yes, we need legislation and we need those things. But if we don't start dealing with the individuals, there's no legislation going out shooting up the schools. It's individual people. And we live in a society where individuals who just common, ordinary people get lost. The number one challenge in our society is people don't see, feel that they're being seen, that they're being heard, or that they're valued. And these are the people left alone in their heads without adult supervision or without care, nourishing, nourishing and love. These are the people how to pick up a gun and, and take other people's lives. So, yes, we need legislation. Yes, we, we need new laws. But it starts with the individual. It starts with the individual. So as we begin as individuals to address our hurts, to address our breakdowns, to address our dysfunctions, I think that we have, will have less and less of this um, kind of activity that's supported by laws and that's supported by our government in- interventions. We'll, we'll see less and less of it. But it begins with the individual.
0: That's motivational speaker, author, and star of the television show, Fix My Life, Ian Van Zant, who is appearing at the Sands Bethlehem on Saturday, April 14th for an evening of pragmatic inspiration. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications.
1: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.